Welcome to the show, Automators. This is your host, Alex Glenn. And today, I'm very excited to talk about data, more specifically, establishing a data-driven organization. With me, I have Jason Davis, the CEO and co-founder of SimonData.com. The reason I asked Jason to be on the show today is not only due to his work with Simon Data in New York City, which is now at around 75 employees and growing rapidly, but because of his extensive background in data. Let's talk about this. Jason received his BS from Cornell in computer science. Then he went on to gain his PhD from the University of Texas in machine learning, data mining, and statistics. After his academic career, Jason founded two data companies, one of which was acquired by Etsy in 2009. At that point, Jason ran data for Etsy.com for three years before leaving to start Simon Data, which has just raised its Series B of $20 million. I'm excited to have Jason on today to discuss how organizations can establish a data-driven organization. 90% Conversational marketing automation discussion. All right, so before we dive into Jason's segment, I want to do a quick introduction to the world of data science and what it means today. So with me, to help me out with this introduction, I've got Scott Brightenother. Scott is the former head of data over at Casper.com. Scott and I met at the CMO Data Summit in Florida this past May, and Scott actually introduced me to Jason from Simon Data. So he is going to share with us a few of his thoughts on data organizations to set the tone for today's talk with Jason. Scott, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing these days? Former management consultant who uh, moved to New York, needed to buy a mattress and ended up buying it from a small startup called Casper. Came on as an early uh, employee to lead data and analytics. And over the course of uh, four years, grew the analytics team to about 16 people and kind of made every single mistake you can you can uh, you can think of along the way and 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 learn by doing and came out the other side having a very very good understanding of what it takes to grow not only in data and analytics team but actually build a data culture in a high growth organization. That was perfect. And give you a quick uh, intro to Scott and I. We met at the CMO Data Summit in Florida, I think in May of 2018. One thing that made me realize how passionate Scott was about data collection, Scott would take at least two naps a day to make sure that he could collect that data and send it back to Casper. I assume that was the purpose. I knew at that point that Scott was just, you know, passionate about what he did. You know, he's one of the best data leaders that you'll find. And I couldn't think of anyone better to introduce this episode again about establishing a data driven organization. And we're going to dive into how Jason over at Simon Data, Jason's going to give the high and low of a data driven organization, how to establish those. And Scott has been kind enough to help us introduce this subject. So the first thing we want to do, Scott, is talk about the role of a data scientist today. And I know you have some thoughts about the term. So go ahead and let us know what you think about the term 
And then, and then what you do as a data scientist, what does it look like for those that have never hired or managed a uh, data scientist? Cool. Before I dig into that, I talk a little bit more about kind of my experience in data and, and, and kind of all the different roles I've seen. So, so as I mentioned, I, I, I built out the, ta- the data team over, over at Casper. It's really interesting because everybody seems to, to think that they want a data scientist. And, and, and to me, that excites me uh, because if you kind of rewind back four or five years ago, I think nobody quite knew what a data scientist was. There was kind of this this idea that everybody, you know, was starting to think that they needed data, but they didn't quite know what it was. I think if you look today, the thing that's changed is, is that, you know, the data scientist, the data practitioner has certainly earned their role in the organization. I think the thing that hasn't changed is that people still don't know what a data scientist is. And um, I think us as, as kind of folks in the data industry, probably haven't done ourselves um, kind of, uh, you know, a good service to in, in defining what data is and what a data scientist is. Um, it, it tends to be an overused term. So data scientist um, can mean many, many things. If, if you if you speak to um, anybody who's in a his data scientist or 10 people who are data scientists, you'll get 10 different answers of what they do. This is a result of just companies not necessarily understanding what a data scientist is and what they need to do. So you have data scientists who are, I would actually call data engineers. You have data scientists um, who are more analysts. You have data scientists who are more research data scientists. Uh, you have data scientists also um, who are essentially BI engineers. So, so right now what you're seeing is you're seeing data scientists as this kind of broad term. Um, and I, I think what you'll see over the next three to five years is people coming up with much more specific titles. People will realize that for both the individual and their career, that it's helpful to have a more specific title. And the companies that are hiring these data individuals will realize that they need specific, more specific titles because you're also seeing a lot of um, folks who are hired as data scientists who are you know, actually not particularly happy because the organization has kind of bait and switched them a little bit, and it's through no fault of their own. But the data scientist, the organization thought they needed a data scientist when they really needed a data engineer. You have the data scientist doing a lot of data manipulation work, and for some people that's interesting. But for many people who are kind of excited and thrilled about the world of data science, coming in and doing data engineering work work isn't the most exciting. It seems to be the case in all departments in an organization. You know, as, as you're starting, you hire this kind of broad stroke type role, like a marketing manager. But then as you scale, you need more specific types of personalities and types of skill sets to kind of fill in those gaps around product marketing versus growth marketing versus content versus branding, et cetera. So it kind of, it all, it all sort of breaks apart from there. So data scientist, maybe the broad strokes, maybe the general term, uh, but there are data engineers and BI specialists and these types of people underneath or within that sort of skill set, something like that. I just have an issue sometimes with the kind of this broad brush term data scientist, because I think it actually probably does everybody involved a disservice. Got it. That makes sense. If you don't already, that would be a great topic to write a blog post about, you know, the role of a data scientist and how that looks now. Um, And uh, we'll link to Scott's blog, of course, in the show notes. You can follow along and get the up-to-date information on what's going on in the world of data from Scott's brain. 
we'll get into the next part of this. So um, as we kind of develop this podcast episode and tee this up for Jason, again, establishing a data-driven organization from Scott, uh, we are looking to set the stage. And the next thing that we want Scott to talk about is the importance of a data strategy for the board members and investors versus the internal operators in the organization. So again, we want Scott to kind of lay out how the data strategy looks and is interpreted from the high level, from the board members and the investors versus how it's actually perceived and uh, how it looks for the internal operations of the company? That's a, that's a really good question. The first thing I want to say is it's very important to crawl, walk, run. It doesn't do anybody any good if you bring in these Ferraris and you don't even have the racetrack built. I think it's important for companies, at least in the earlier stages, to be super thoughtful about building that racetrack so that you can have these high-paid, highly skilled individuals doing what they do best. It's all about being thoughtful. At first, it's about just getting the numbers and being quick and dirty. Because I think it's also easy to, to think that you're not doing it right until you have this all-star data team. But if you look you know, 10, 20 years ago, people were still making decisions and, and doing pretty well. I think the bar has been raised and the tools we have allow us to make better decisions than ever before. But you don't require a data warehouse and a data scientist and a data engineer and a whole data organization to make decisions. I love it. That's a great synopsis. And that's why I asked you, because you take it to a different level and look at it from a different <laughs> perspective and give us all some clarity. So in my experience, I'll just say this. Uh, historically, investor data, that's, you know, that's your retroactive data. That's what can you extrapolate from a report and how can you consolidate reports and give investors and give board members what they need to see on a monthly or quarterly basis from retroactive data. Um, so in that infrastructure, you just need to be able to consolidate data. You need to be able to grab the data and collect the data and then put it into a nice, easily digestible report for your investors and your board members to see versus internal operations. You need that live data. You need that synced data. You need that event data. You need proper attribution. And Jason and I talk about that. Uh, in, in a few minutes here in, in Jason's segment. So you need that real-time data and then you need the tools and the scientists or the actual data experts to be able to elaborate and um, use that data in real time to provide product, to provide engineering, to provide marketing, exactly what they need to make real-time decisions. Anything left to say around the data strategy for board members and investors versus internal operators? I think for board members, it's a balance because realistically, we're in a world where every part of the organization has greater access to data than they have ever had before. I think it might be exciting for some companies to provide their board members with full access to all data. Um, it might be exciting for for board members and investors to want full access to data. But I think it's that creates more challenges. You want to be thoughtful and very selective with what you share you know, externally, even if external is, is um, investors. Just because when you're building out data infrastructure, there is a certain level of reliability. For example, the data that your data warehouse and your BI tool produces should be reliable, 
but it probably won't have the same resourcing that, say, your production uh, systems do, like your website, um, your e-commerce website, or you know your app does, just because it makes more sense to put more resources in selling product than counting product. And so that means that your data that you produce as a data organization has to be good enough, and it's not going to have five nines like your your production system. And so when you start to introduce greater scrutiny from third parties, it results in the data team trying to get to that five nines and, and doing less. And so I always opt for the data team to have a broader remit to produce more data and to be very transparent with you know what's bulletproof, what's experimental, and what's what's good enough. Because again, if, if you only as a data team are producing perfect data, that means you're probably too slow for the organization. That is a great quote. I like that. Put that on a bumper sticker. I'm going to. That's going to be all over the place. Okay, perfect. Well, let's move into this uh, quick number three. And then I I tacked on a fourth question that I want to get your feedback on. So a little bit of a a wrench here, not anticipated, but I think you'll have some good things to say about that. So read that real quick while I introduce this third question. Now, Scott, I want you to let us know if you have any examples of what data competency looks like. That could be organizations that do it right. That could be the setup internally. You're coming into new projects. And you and I have, have looked at a couple together and seen the opposite. So what is what does data competency look like? That's a great question. And I think the funny thing is, I speak with a lot of people in the data community. And the, the funny thing is, nobody thinks they're doing it perfectly. And that's because it's, you know, A, it's such an evolving field. And, and B, it, there's no perfect. And so I think it's all about finding the appropriate level of data competency for your level of organization, for your level of development as an organization, and how much resources you're willing to put into it. Thank you for that synopsis of data competency, Scott. That was very helpful. And uh, I think everybody's going to be excited about this next question. And I threw this one in there last minute, so no pressure, but it's an important one because especially in your industry, there's a lot of buzzwords, like you mentioned, around data science, especially around setup of the data, around repositories, around warehouses. There there are some terms that I want to get your feedback on and around the progression of these terms and what they meant maybe a few years ago versus what they mean today. And those terms are data lake, data repository and data warehouse. So can you give us the two cents, the the gist, and uh, and then maybe some future state and future definition of these terms? Sure, uh, yeah, Ooh, that is a uh, very challenging last minute addition. I think it's challenging um, because if you ask 10 different people what those what those terms mean, data lake, data repository, and data warehouse, you'll, you'll get 10 different answers. I mean, that's probably an exaggeration. Uh, you, you'll probably get two or three different answers, but I think there's a bit of a different view from the data engineering perspective and from the, the uh, analyst perspective. And I think the challenge differs in whether um, those terms are physical pieces of hardware or functions within it within the infrastructure. So is Redshift your data warehouse? Because the, your, your Redshift cluster is a data warehouse because Redshift is data warehouse as a service. Or is, Red, is Redshift 
infrastructure that houses your data lake, your data repository, and your data warehouse. And and, and so I think the the challenge is, you know, does does do those terms refer to pieces of infrastructure or functions? Um, that can be performed by different pieces of infrastructure. And I think you can get really technical in it, um, but I mean, data lake is 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 less structured than, you know, non-structured or semi-structured and data warehouses, if you're thinking of it as its functions, much, much more structured. But again, in your data warehouse, in your Redshift cluster, you could have staged data, so raw data, unmodeled data, and then you could have model data. Um, I, I think the big, the big difference, you know, the big kind of divide these days, what you'll see is is between raw and modeled data. I think those those are kind of the most important differentiators, the two most important different types of data. And then the the other dimension is kind of batch versus streamed. And and I think you know that matrix of batch versus stream, raw versus processed, is probably going to be kind of that two by two matrix is probably going to cover and explain kind of the main categories of data that you'll be dealing with. And of course, there's many different flavors and people can call things lakes, repositories, or warehouses. But at the end of the day, it's the it's how you're getting it, whether it's batch or streaming, so kind of streaming or micro-batching, and then um, modeled or raw data. I love it. I love it. That's perfect. So it's actually a perfect segue into the episode today. So we actually do get to hear Jason uh, talk just a little bit about those terms to lead off this episode. But we all thank Scott so much for joining us. This is great. We've been trying to do this for a while. So this is a great introduction to Scott to the listeners. So we'll want to hear from everybody what they want Scott to talk about next, anything and everything data, and we'll link to Scott's blog, like we mentioned. If you want to name the blog real quick, uh, the .com, in case people want to head there. Sure. It's locallyoptimistic.com. And it's, it's a blog I run with a few of my uh, data friends and colleagues. Thank you so much for joining us today. And go ahead and dive into the episode here with Jason, where we continue the conversation of how to establish a data-driven organization. Yes, my name is Jason Davis, CEO and co-founder of a customer data platform called Simon Data. My background for the last 10 years has been an entrepreneur. My previous business was an ad tech product that automated the entire process of ad creation and syndication uh, for small retailers. That business was acquired by Etsy. And at Etsy, I integrated that technology. And today it represents your self-service ads offering. Uh, and beyond that, we also built their data infrastructure, the data science team. It was through that process where Simon Data was born. The roots of Simon uh, are really uh, about enabling non-technical stakeholders to better leverage uh, data for insights and action to better do their jobs. Simon Data, we are uh, 100% focused on customer engagement and retention, you know, both within marketing, product, and, and also support functions. Um, you know, in, in a previous life, I was an academic. Uh, I earned a PhD in machine learning uh, from the University of Texas at Austin. Jason received his BS from Cornell in computer science. Then he went on to gain his PhD from the University of Texas in machine learning, data mining, and statistics. After his academic career, Jason founded two data companies, one of which was acquired by Etsy in 2009. At that point, Jason ran data for Etsy.com for three years before leaving to start Simon Data, which has just raised its Series B of 20 million. I'm excited to have Jason on today to discuss how organizations can establish a data-driven organization. Without further ado, 
Let's dive in. I think a real game changer. 100%. And also, add, you know, for a business at scale, maybe 20, 30 employees at that point, depending on you know the, the specific category, and you'll want to get some sort of BI solution, whether it be Tableau or, or Looker or Periscope or one of the, the, the many um, options in the market today. Um, you know, these systems sit on top of data warehouses or even just you know, basic databases, uh, you know, SQL, Postgres, et cetera. Um, you know, I think the choice of technology, um, you know, really just depends on the scale of the data, but, uh, you know, having that, you know, traditional relational structured, uh, you know, data warehouse, you know, is, you know, sort of the standard way that many businesses go when they, you know, set up their BI, uh, tool to power their dashboards and whatnot. Got it. That makes sense. Okay. So that's a perfect segue into data foundation setup strategies. And that is why I have you on today. I have a ton of respect for what you've accomplished in your career especially coming in and out of e-commerce and the ad tech industry, the level of Etsy, where you have handled some enormous data sets and been responsible for a lot in terms of the flow of data, the infrastructure, uh, the accuracy of data attribution, and all the things that we're going to talk about on this episode. In your presentation at the AWS event, you talked about uh, the security camera analogy. Can you explain what that analogy was and how it relates to data foundation? The point that's, in, that's salient here is to know, look, like your data strategy only affects what you measure. And you need to think about exactly what you want to measure. Uh, you know, businesses are incredibly complex. You know, if you're a direct-to-consumer, you know, vertically integrated e-commerce company, you might have a warehouse, uh, or you definitely have, you know, some sort of warehouse. Um, you know, and, and, and inventory gets stolen, it gets dropped on the floor, it breaks. How do you think about measuring that? You know, how do you think about measuring the causes of, of breakage? And this is just, you know, one of hundreds of different dimensions of a business. And, you know, what you need to do is, you know, think about where do you want to measure, where do you want to place those security cameras, you know, if, if you have a security camera in a mall, you, know, you can place it in the parking garage and see, hey, you know, where are people, uh, you know, you know, generally parking? How does that influence the anchor stores or the first stores they walk by when they go um, into the mall? Um, you know, or, 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 you know, or what state are they coming from if uh, you're in a region where, you know, they might drop in multiple states? So, um, you know, it's, it really is a matter of thinking broadly across the business, uh, you know, realizing that you have finite resources and what you're able to measure. Uh, and then making sure that uh, from the top down, you're aligned on what are the critical business functions that need to get measured uh, and how are they measured and how they measured accurately. Um, you know, and, and that's really where you need to start. Got it. Yeah. And, and you mentioned um, zooming in. I like that analogy of a camera zooming in on a specific aspect of, of something. So that kind of relates to the data strategy. So you have to have those multiple viewpoints of the system, but then you also have to have the ability to zoom in and get nitty gritty um, on particular aspects of what's happening in order to make that data foundation work and the setup strategy uh, really help your business. So I really like that analogy. That was great. So um, moving on, uh, let's talk about attribution. I mean, you come from e-commerce. Attribution is probably a big pain point in your past and, and something you've struggled with um, in the early days, especially it's getting a lot better now with today's tools. But let's talk about attribution. Uh, let's talk about the three different models, uh, the three main models of attribution. I know there are several. And then your recommendations real quick, and then that'll back into flows. Right. I mean, attribution is, is tremendously complex. And my, my answer here is, is going to be incredibly dissatisfying and in saying that I don't really have uh, and then unable to provide a recommendation on how to, how, how to do it specifically. 
uh, you know, in generalities, I think the approach, you know, really you need to think about the business. Um, you know, that's consideration number one. And then consideration number two is you need to think about something which, uh, you know, which is simple uh, and understandable. Uh, you know, so for a business that uh, maybe has a lower price point uh, and a product that doesn't require, you know, tremendous amount of consideration, uh, you can probably get away with maybe a last quick attribution, a very simple measure. Um, you know, you know, in particular, if, if you believe uh, and have reason to think that when your customer encounters the brand, you know, the purchase process, uh, you know, is sort of a, a one or two minute thing uh, in terms of making the decision, um, you know, you can get away with much simpler models. Um, you know, if you're thinking about, uh, you know, attribution modeling for a more considered purchase, buying a home, purchasing a car, um, uh, you know, at this point, you really need to think much more holistically. Uh, and you need to look at, at multiple touch points. Uh, when someone buys a home, you know, they might go on Zillow, uh, they might see ads on the web for other homes, uh, they're talking to agents, um, you know, you know, they, they're, they're most likely opening up emails as well, engaging with direct mail, uh, you know, maybe even seeing ads on TV and whatnot. Um, you know, for a process that takes uh, 60 days, three months, six months, years for some people, um, you know, attributions is tremendously, is, is just tremendously difficult. Um, you know, so I think, uh, you know, as to my initial point, I think it's a matter of, of making sure that you have a strong thesis on uh, how your customers uh, interact with the brand and how they ultimately purchase. Uh, and with this, you know, I'd say just find a model which is as simple as possible, um, you know, in the context of the complexity of the buying process and also, you know, the maturity of your business. Uh, you know, if you're three, you know, three people in a back room and you're trying to you know, build some incredibly complex multi-touch attribution model, um, you know, you'll probably just make mistakes, uh, you know, and, and you know, at the cost of any incremental value and, um, that the model will provide. Agreed. So simpler, the better. Know and stick to a model across your sources. It's more about consistency than it is uh, complexity and, and making sure that you have that full attribution because that's going to be very tricky. Right. And another thing I'll add, you know, as your business gets to scale, um, one of the most effective forms of understanding attribution is experimentation. Uh, you know, so, you know, let's consider a simple business that, you know, sends emails uh, and targets with Facebook ads. Um, you know, well, you know, if, 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 you, if, you, if you run a holdout for some percentage of, of your customers or traffic, uh, you know, where you don't show them the Facebook ads or don't show them the emails, um, you know, at that point, uh, you can do some analysis to show what the incremental lift is of those two uh, cohorts that were subject to a holdout. Um, yeah, yeah, so that's, you know, you know, not classical attribution, but it is certainly a way of, of understanding causality, which ultimately is the, answer, is the question you're trying to answer anyway. Okay, so let's talk about flows. You had a great anecdote around Zappos and how they actually send out multiple shoes, receive some data around customer size and how that creates the foundation of a lot of sales and operations and marketing automation that stems from that data. So let's use the Zappos anecdote to articulate the data foundation and how it unfolds in a quote unquote data flow. Great. Uh, you know, so fundamentally, uh, you know, your data strategy you know, starts with you know, with what you measure and what your data asset is. Uh, from there, it translates into an operational, um, you, know, you know, collection process and aggregation process. Um, you know, with those aggregations, you can do very simple things like, you know, count the number of transactions or sales that you had yesterday, which is a great starting point. Um, but if you're really thinking about business processes, you need to be thinking about something called flows. 
Uh, a flow is, is a sequence of events uh, that may, you know, may interact, you know, maybe interactions with the customer, maybe interactions with inventory, uh, maybe interactions with the website or anything else. Um, you know, but uh, a flow ultimately is a business process. And, you know, a great example, as you mentioned, is, is, is Zappos's, uh, you know, return policy. Um, you know, so with Zappos, you know, they came to market, uh, you know, and, and, and Tony Shea is one of, uh, you know, one of his big, you know, big theses was, hey, um, you know, how can we sell shoes online? Uh, can we build, um, you know, a brand where uh, it's easy to overbuy, buy additional sizes, additional colors, um, you know, additional, um, you, know, you know, types of shoes or whatnot, uh, and make it completely seamless and easy to return. Um, you know, so that was the hypothesis and really the thesis that, uh, you know, basically the, the company was founded on. Uh, and uh, in, in operating that business, you need to really make sure you can measure that entire flow. Uh, you know, so I buy, I go to, to Zappos, uh, I browse a shoe. Um, I wonder, hey, what, do I wear 11 or 11 and a half in this shoe? Uh, and Zappos says, uh, you know, we don't know, but we'll send you both. Uh, and then I, I browse some more. I say, hey, do I want brown or I want black? Uh, and Zappos says, why don't you try both? Um, you know, so what happens there is I you know, go to my cart uh, and now I've uh, bought four pairs of shoes. Um, you know, they get shipped to my home. I try them on, uh, you know, and you know, one, of, one of three things happen. Uh, one is I find that uh, one of the, pair, the two pairs uh, fits me and I keep one of the shoes. Um, you know, two is I might keep both colors of the shoes, um, or three is neither fits and I return all of them. Um, you know, and, and from Zappos' perspective, um, you know, they need to make sure that they can, you know, from a data perspective, need to be able to track every part of that interaction. Uh, you know, so how does the customer interact with the website? Um, you know, what shoes are shipped in the box ultimately? Are there things out of stock or shipping issues? When I go in to make my return, um, you know, who do I interact with on the support you know, process? You know, how much time do I spend interacting with support? Um, you know, how costly is that you know, the support cost? Uh, and then when it comes to shipping it you know, back, uh, you know, did Zappos re re receive the shoes? Was I refunded, et cetera? Uh, you know, so this is a flow uh, that from a data perspective touches uh, many parts of the business, support, um, the website, uh, facilities and operations, uh, and more. Uh, and, if, and if Zappos isn't able, uh, you know, if there's a single part of that flow which isn't measured, you know, it's very hard to really understand what's going on. Uh, you know, so, you know, from a, a data perspective, uh, it's important to think not just about aggregates, how much revenue did we uh, generate in Q4, but also think about, you know, about flows. What are the most critical flows in my business and how can I make sure that I'm able to measure the, more, the most critical steps within those? Got it. And I'm just thinking of a, a sort of a way to uh, use that same analogy in the B2B space, in the software space. And I think the best way to articulate it is, you know, Zappos is, is not just sending a pair of shoes, which could create a system where there is a certain time frame of unknown. There are a lot of missing data points because the customer could hold on to that pair of shoes. Maybe the delivery didn't make it. They still don't know if that size is the right size for the customer. So they're creating a lot more unknowns. But what Zappos did is they sent you three pairs of shoes, which is increasing the certainty of knowing which pair fits you. And then they create that feedback loop system. So if you're a software founder or someone uh, on a software team or SaaS team, um, this could be something along the lines of event-based analytics of knowing 
which features your customers are using by making sure there's attribution analytics and event-based analytics around each one of those features so that you know customer A is using this feature, customer B is not, and this is how much they're using it, and this is what we need to do based on that data. And that could trigger all sorts of flows on the marketing automation side, but also on the product side and on the customer success side. If you are listening and you are on the B2B side, just be cognizant of of this system along the lines of event-based analytics. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And and of course, on the B2B side, thinking about your sales funnel. Yeah. So, you know, how many customers go from, you know, first meeting to second meeting, from decision to contract, uh, from contract to close, uh, and what does that look like? Okay. That's perfect. Awesome. Okay, great. So talked about flows. Now we would like to talk to the teams out there that are considering their data foundation, obviously their data culture and how that whole system is influenced by the outside pressures, you know? So there's a lot of he said, she said, there's a lot of we predict or we guesses going on in boardrooms, um, in whiteboard sessions, in strategy sessions. So the whole the whole point of this discussion is, is data-driven organizations. So what does that mean to the culture of an organization? How do you actually create a culture that's less influenced by the he said, she said, guesses, and I predicts, and more influenced by data. So we talked about how to create that foundation, but let's talk about what that actually means and how do you continue to reinforce that data-driven organizational foundation to make sure that the culture is all rallied around data. So let's talk about that real quick, however you want to kick that off. Yeah, I mean, you know, any company culture and certainly data culture needs to come from the top. Um, and you know, with regards to goals, uh, you know, any goal that can't be measured, uh, you're going to have a very hard time, uh, you know, understanding if you were successful or not. Um, you know, I think uh, it's just incredibly critical that every each of your business goals is first laid out clearly, uh, and then maps directly to one, two, uh, or, or 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 a small number of, of KPIs uh, or key, key performance indicators. Uh, once those are defined. Um, you know, if you're, if you, you know, if you have goals around, um, around, you know, new customer acquisition, if you have goals around customer retention, if you have goals around margin, uh, if you have goals around, you know, cost of goods sold or whatever this might be, um, you know, make sure that each translate to a number, um, you know, that, uh, the entire business, uh, you know, can, can see is visible and can track, uh, and then each function. Uh, you know, should have responsibilities that ladder into those goals and into directly optimizing, you know, a subset of those numbers. Um, you know, so I think that, uh, you know, so, so, so that's number one. Um, you know, and once that those facilities are in place, uh, it's then a matter of uh, socializing uh, these numbers. Uh, and that happens through several constant, con- you know, you know contexts, building dashboards, um, you know, from my perspective, is, 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 is the place to start. A good dashboard, uh, you know, shows the top line uh, numbers, but also has good information hierarchy uh, in showing what are the some of the leading causes that can affect the numbers. Um, if your goal for the quarter, as an example, um, you know, is a 30% increase in, uh, in, 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 in net new customers uh, over the previous quarter, uh, you know, that can be broken down by, um, you know, the source of these customers. Did they come in through Facebook ads? Were they referred by a friend? Uh, did they come direct? Um, you know, and, and, and with each one of these, uh, you know, different functions of marketing or maybe of the product um, or whatnot uh, may have different levers that they can affect 
uh, you know, to drive those forward. You know, so I think really making sure that uh, you know, you know, that you know, there's you know, clear goals uh, with associated KPIs that ladder uh, down and throughout the entire organization uh, in a way that has high visibility. Uh, and it's also just talked about, uh, you know, in the context of, of of everything that's going on in the business on a daily basis. Got it. So, so making sure those KPIs are very clear at each level of the organization, it could change, but making sure that the communication is there, that the KPIs are set, that all organizational heads or all department heads, sorry, um, know the KPIs and are creating systems around more and more informational sort of feedback loops internally to make sure those KPIs are understood and how each department in the organization affects the KPIs that the organization is focused on at that time. That could be BI dashboards that you see hung up on screens in the hallways. But more than that, I mean, if you want to talk real quickly, Jason, about any any recommendations you have to the founders out there that are struggling uh, with making sure the communication is very clear and everybody really understands, not just knows that, hey, we're after growth or, hey, we're after revenue or, hey, we're after users in some way, but really understand what the KPIs are and how their particular role impacts that KPI. Yeah, I think it's it's a matter of, of 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 making sure there's clear responsibility in the organization, and that you know everyone from the CEO you know on down uh, you know empowers you know their team uh, and socializes the metrics that are um, you know within the responsibility of their function. Uh, you know, so I think it's really just uh, you know a top down exercise. Uh, you know, where uh, where every you know manager, director, VP, um, you know executive in the business. Uh, you know, is, is, is you know understands the top level KPIs and how uh, their specific uh, you know functional goals and metrics ladder into that. Got it, got it. And um, reporting, just internal reports coming back to you. You're the CEO. You have 70 employees. I don't know how many departments. Just on a best practice standpoint, uh, can you talk real quickly about maybe the timing of reports and the complexity of the reports, whether that's monthly, quarterly, weekly, anything you can say around around the reporting and making sure that the owner of that KPI is reporting it in the way that you, uh, you believe helps them understand it, but also gets you the information and then the timing of those reports. Yeah. I mean, I think when, when you know, as a CEO, when I look at, at, at these kinds of reports or analyses, I mean, you know, I look for a few different things. Uh, you know, if a team is optimizing a specific KPI, um, you know, and it moves in one direction very quickly, you know, my first question will be around sensitivity. Uh, if we were able to increase it by 10%, you know, is there a lot more leverage here than we maybe thought? Is the problem maybe easier than we thought? Are we better suited to solve this problem than we thought? Um, you know, and what does that mean? Of course, conversely, if there's, you know, a little movement, uh, you know, what does that mean? Is there a strategy wrong? Is this a problem we're not going to solve, et cetera? Um, you know, that's sort of the, you know, the high level business question I'm asking. You know, beyond that, you know, what I look for in, in, in a report, you know, the second thing is to really make sure that I have, you know, you know, you know, that the report clearly makes a case that, you know, the function or the individual or whoever was, you know, working uh, on a piece of analysis or optimizing a business function, uh, you know, has an understanding uh, of the business function and, you know, went through, um, you know, the steps that at least, you know, from my perspective, seem like, you know, reasonable places to consider uh, and really make a case that, uh, that you know an exhaustive and a, and a thoughtful effort was made, um, and then sort of the third thing beyond that is you know any sort of um, you know findings around uh, what might be driving the process, um, you know you know things that might have you know implications outside of a uh, of, of a specific business function, and 
and other considerations, insights. Um, you know, I, I always, uh, you, know, you know, try to make sure that anything that I can pick up that I can use to better understand the business are included as well. Got it. And we will talk quickly at the very end about the stack and about the tools that you use for some of this reporting. But before that, let's go into scaling and talk about self-serve versus full-serve scaling the definitions, the differences, and the preferences. I thought you had a really good section in the presentation about self-service versus full service. Yeah. So I mean, look, the first requirement of your data function is that you know, you're able to effectively get the data you need and then be able to use that to uh, you know, have those requisite conversations. Um, you know, in, in an ideal state, you know, everyone in the business is 100% empowered to pull their own reports and have full visibility over every piece of data and what it means and where it comes from. Um, you know, and how it's measured. Uh, you know, you're not going to start there. Um, you know, so I think you know, the reality is you're going to want to start in a place where uh, you have a full service model. Um, you know, you have a, a bit of a less of an investment in technology. Uh, you, know, you, you, know, as, as, you know, mapping back to you know your first data scientist. Uh, you know, someone who understands the business can communicate well. Uh, you know, understands technology, but is also not afraid of uh, you know pulling in four spreadsheets together. Uh, doing a, a bunch of uh, awkward uh, Excel manipulations to get the data into a single place, uh, and then using that as the first iteration. Um, um, you know, so I think you know, and that's very much a full service model. Uh, you know, a CMO, you know, working with um, you know an analyst or a data scientist uh, to try to get some insight on uh, where customers are coming from and uh, and, and and what's driving to their their purchase decision, as an example. You know, you know, as a business matures, uh, you know, full service has, you know, self-service, you know, full service has several drawbacks, uh, you know, one of which being uh, it's expensive. Uh, and the second is, uh, you know, individuals aren't really empowered, you know, to, uh, you know, to really do a deeper level of exploration every time they have to go and work with a, um, you know, an analyst team or a data science team before they can get an answer. Ah, okay. And that, that actually is important with the previous section about culture. I think you would agree that instilling a certain level of ownership in each department for, for that data collection and how that's extracted, whether it's from a, a report in the software or it's somewhat of a manual process, but having having a little bit of ownership that helps with the culture, but also speaks to your, uh, your differences between self-serve and full-serve and what that looks like at scale. So uh, let's talk about that real quick. Let's talk about instilling ownership in those KPIs and how that changes as you scale uh, with relation to self-service and full service. Yeah, I mean, you know, ultimately in the quest of, of, of sort of data excellence, you know, you want to understand causality. Uh, you, know, you know, what made this number increase? What can further make this number increase? Um, and to whatever extent you empower individuals to have you know, full access um, where they can spend an afternoon, spend an hour, spend an evening, uh, you know, iterating over hypotheses, digging into data, exploring, um, you know, possible, uh, uh, you know, considerations, uh, you really just can accelerate that. Okay. That's great. I love the causality aspect of it. I mean, we, we keep touching on causality. I think that's a, that's a great theme. I'm going to look more into that afterwards, but let's end on the stack. Let's talk about Simon Data's stack. Let's talk about what you guys use to create this system. Because I know Simon Data is probably a big part of that, but um, let's talk about what else exists. Uh, right. You know, so from an infrastructure perspective, we have you know a, a fairly complex system that uses dozens of uh, uh, of, of, of AWS resources, we're an Amazon shop. 
um, you know, including everything from Amazon Redshift to Elasticsearch to, to Athena to Spectrum to you know, many of their um, uh, you know, you know, big data technologies. Um, yeah, I think you know, really one of our um, you know, sort of market theses is we want to make sure uh, that every piece of information that our customers have uh, on their customers uh, is available in our platform for insights uh, and also for targeting and for messaging. Um, you know, so that's, that's, that's our infrastructure. And uh, as, you know, for automation, I mean, we use our platform as an intelligence layer to, um, you know, to run our marketing automation. Uh, you know, we use it to, uh, you know, send emails, uh, you know, through, through SendGrid. We use it, uh, you know, to target, um, you know, program, programmatic direct mail, uh, you know, through a business called Lob. Uh, we use it to target uh, ads on Facebook and Google uh, and more. Um, yeah, but we use it fairly extensively in, in our uh, in, in our sales process and our marketing automation uh, um, uh, you know, campaigns as well. Got it. And is there a BI dashboard you use, or do you leverage Simon Data? No, we use Looker uh, for BI. Looker for BI. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. Shout out to those guys over there. Okay. So we got AWS and all the tools that come with the AWS platforms. Um, Simon Data, obviously, for your marketing automation. SynGrid as an ESP to push all that email out. Uh, Lob. I hear a lot more about Lob. They're going more upstream, but for direct mail, uh, which is coming back, if you haven't looked into that, there's some interesting things going on with uh, Trigger Direct Mail. I'm looker for BI and uh, some in-depth analytics on those large data sets. Very, very cool. This has been great. I think we got what we need out of everything from culture, from the terminology, from the setup, creating that foundation. We talked about flows. We gave some good analogies. More importantly, you know how you scale these systems and the difference between self-serve and full service and how that changes as the organization scales. Anything else you want to say before we end? The only thing I'll add, you know, I guess we maybe state explicitly, this is a point of iteration and you know, really making sure that on day one, when you commit you know, to hiring a data scientist, or even just on day one when you go to market, or uh, before you go to market, you know, make sure that you're starting somewhere simple. Uh, you're measuring the very, very basics and go one step at a time. Uh, the end state is incredibly complex, but uh, and getting there will certainly take time. And the only way to get there uh, is to start with something which just seems beyond. Uh, beyond simple. Got it. One step at a time. And if you have any resources, obviously it's Simon data that you've published uh, that help articulate the setup and the structure and any recommendations around that, or if you know a resource, definitely share that afterwards. And I will link to that in the notes. If you're listening, there will be an article on automated that helps illustrate all this stuff and goes into detail and obviously shows the links that we mentioned. But we definitely want to thank Jason for taking the time. This is huge. And I've wanted to do this episode for a while. So thank you for helping me make it happen. Hang on the line. I'm going to end the recording. But before I do, actually, one more thing. If you want to give a call to action, obviously, simondata.com. Do a quick little plug about what you guys have going right now. Uh, sure. Simon Data is a customer data platform. Uh, we are directed, you know, we work with fast growing and large enterprise direct to consumer businesses. Um, you know, we can integrate into your existing marketing uh, infrastructure uh, and your marketing automation, automation infrastructure to make it more performant. Uh, you know, check out simondata.com for more information. All right, sir. Well, thank you so much. Um, let me know if you have any other questions after this and good luck with your week and, and um, getting all those uh, distributed team members uh, <laughs> accumulated in, in New York there. 
Thanks, Pat. All right, take care. All right, Alex. Bye. Bye. Marketing automation discussion.